Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and of course, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, how are you doing? Uh, doing okay, I guess. <laughs> Whatever I can do to stay sane, right? It's not so, easy, I'll tell you. It really isn't. It really isn't. And I got to take this dog out a couple times a day, and she gets really restless. So you know how social I am. I've been pretty much without human contact for 13 days. It's it's not good. Yeah, and you're. It's going to be the start of something. You're out in California, so it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Well, hopefully, fingers crossed that everything's going to get under control, and hopefully, this will be over sooner rather than later. That may be wishful thinking, but. As we wished on our mini episode the other day, we're hoping everyone is staying safe and following the instructions and we're going to get through this. Yes, we will. We'll get through it and uh, we'll get by. Of course, tonight we're going to be talking about the rising, which really grew out of those tragic events in September of 2001. And I think that this is really a landmark album in terms of rising up in the face of pain and loss. So it's very appropriate for the times. Yes, I think it's a very appropriate time to discuss this album. And But, but I think before we even talk about the 9-11 influence, I mean, we need to go back to... he. What Bruce was in the process of trying to record with the E Street Band at that time. Yes. I mean, there were these, the March 2001 sessions where supposedly they got about, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen songs laid down, but then realized that it just didn't sound quite right. Is that where the American skin came from i believe so i believe so and to me if that was what came out of it i think they made the right decision because to me american skin that that quote-unquote demo or the original version of it it sounds like tracks disc four with the e street band yeah it really did sound flat so i don't know if bruce was looking for some inspiration of course american skin is a great song but they had already released the fabulous version from the garden on the live, live in new york city right and, the live version yeah and of course and they but then they a few years later they got it down for for high hopes but at the time they they realized it just that wasn't really working so that's when they, they went to an out, outside producer and uh, brendan o'brien now if i recall who was it tommy matola who recommended brendan o'brien was it him or Donnie Einer? Oh, maybe it was Einer. Okay, right. Maybe yeah, it was Einer. Yeah, and I think somebody suggested, I remember reading or hearing at the time, that, that someone suggested to Bruce, like five years earlier, that, hey, Bruce, maybe you should work with, work with someone outside your, your circle. And and in classic Bruce style, it took him five years to actually do that. So. Yes, as we know, the, the pendulum does not move quickly in Springsteen world. No, it didn't. No, it doesn't. But I think in this time... In the, in the example of the rising, it actually did. I mean, if they started, re- apparently they had their first meeting, Bruce and Brendan had their first meeting, I guess, sometime in, well, it was pre 9-11. So it was, I'm going to guess it was late summer. So they, so they, let's say, let's say August 1st, they have their first meeting. The album, album was out less, like almost exactly a year later. Yeah, no, they, this one did come together quickly. And of course it was the first record with the E Street Band since Born in the USA. Of course. And and as we can we can go through and list every and how long each album uh, prior to, to the rising took to actually put together and get out. I mean, the born in the USA took two years. The river took another year, took a year and a half. So in comparatively speaking, the rising was a pretty quick record. Well, I think part of it was and we know there's the story that someone yelled out, Bruce, we need you. 
I think that that's probably a little exaggerated. I don't think that <laughs> is the reason the rising resulted. But I do think that Bruce obviously had this group of songs which was very thematic for the time, and he must have wanted to get it out pretty quickly to capture the moment. And I and I think he did, as we're going to discuss each song track by track shortly. I mean, this record really does take a look at the pain and loss that the nation experienced. Yes, and certainly the fact that his his I mean, living in Monmouth County, which really is not that far from New York City, a lot of people in his in his town in his neighborhood were were victims of the terrorist attacks and so it affected him deeply and directly and so it doesn't it, it's really not a surprise that his reaction to to the tragedies ended up being a, a great album yes and he spoke very eloquently about that in the media blitz he did for the record i i remember with ted koppel and several of the other people he spoke to especially about his kids, of course, were much younger then, and they had friends who were in school who lost parents, and it, it really did make a lasting impact on, I think, obviously the entire country, but him very specifically. Yes, yes, it was hit hit everyone in New Jersey and that area pretty pretty deeply. So, should we talk about the record? Yeah, you want to you want to talk about the overall? Or you want to talk about track by track? Well, I think we. Why don't we give our initial impressions and then we'll go track by track? Okay. Okay. You want to go first? I think my initial impression I've sort of hinted at, well, more than hinted at, I've articulated it already. I mean, I do see this as a album that's about rising up in the face of adversity and dealing with all of these horrible issues, losing a loved one. And I think that that's reflected pretty much throughout the record, certainly as an entire narrative, even in some of the tracks that may not be as specific as others, because I'm thinking, of course, about Into the Fire, You're Missing, The Rising. Those are more specific, I think, even though they have universal overtones on loss, but they're more specific to the events of 9-11 than, say, I think something like Let's Be Friends is. Well, it's not it's not a coincidence that Let's Be Friends was written prior to 9-11. <laughs> oh, do we uh, we know that for sure? Yes. Yes. The Brian Hyatt book has a pretty, pretty much uh, laid out that way. Oh, I haven't looked at that recently. What's the his what was the history on that? Well, it was from the from the 98 2000, 98 to 2000 era. There's not a specific date that we have. It's just that it was recorded at that point, And I don't think it was recorded in March 2001. But it was certainly it was it was actually it was a Toby Scott recording. So he was still using the 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 old school circle that he had going for all those years. No, that's really interesting. I don't think I realized that. Right. And another thing I learned, I was just reading about this the last couple of days. Nothing Man was actually part of the March 2001 sessions. Oh, really? Yeah. As was Harry's Place of all of all songs. <laughs> yeah, of course, Harry's Place is on High Hopes, which comes out later. I certainly think he made the right call leaving it off. It's not oh, a song absolutely. that's anywhere in the same category as what he had on this record. Yeah, that was kind of why I gave a little chortle there at the end when I talking about it. It did not fit at all. Your initial impressions of the record? I I was grabbed by the first the first string notes of of Lonesome Day and really it held me through through all 15 songs. I loved it. I still love it. I can see where there where some people would say that it's a little bloated, and yeah, sure, I could. There are a couple songs in there I would take out, uh, at least now. You know, of course, now it's 18 years later, and hindsight's always 2020. But at the time, I was so we were so happy to have these 15 new songs from Bruce and the band that 
and and have it be a re- direct reaction to, to those events that really that brought the nation together. I think that it is an underrated record. It may be a little hard to say that because, of course, when it came out, it had such an incredible blitz of publicity and and the discussion about how Bruce had reacted to these themes and so forth. But I think as time has gone on and as we get into the tracks now, I, I do think it's important not only for us to remember but everyone else who's listening to us discuss the record back to a time like before waiting on a sunny day was a child song <laughs> on stage and so forth. And, and, and I actually just listened to the record in its entirety on vinyl for the first time. I had it sitting here when, since it came out about a month ago and I listened to it last night and I put myself back into the context of hearing it for the first time. And we heard it about a week before the record came out in, in 2002, right before the rehearsal show started that they were doing in Asbury. And I tried to put myself back into that context and, and doing that, it puts everything into a little bit of a different realm, especially waiting on a sunny day and, and lonesome day, which have been played so many times since then. And I think some of the fan base is like, a little worn out of those songs and certainly waiting on a sunny day. We're all worn out (laughs) at this point. Right. But in in the context, we're about to discuss it, which is the record on its initial impact. Those songs are entirely different than the way we feel about them today. Right. Well, at the time we were looking at, at every song and every lyric, basically, basically through a nine 11 lens. Yes. And so I, and all these years later, not so quite through that lens as much as we did. And, and for some songs, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like they're separate. Though but, I will say it's a little unfair for me to group Lonesome Day with Waiting on a Sunny Day, because I think Waiting on a Sunny Day, because of the the ch- children being on stage and all you, of that stuff has worn out its welcome for a lot of the audience. Lonesome you, Day remains an incredible song. Well, you mean the kindergarten karaoke doesn't work for you? Well, I think we've discussed this before, and let's not get off track with because we are going to discuss the record straight through now. But right. no, well, it does not. It does well, not right, for the record. Right. There are about there are about you know the the title track and Lonesome Day and Sunny Day have certainly they've been played more than they have been been played in in the years since I guess since the start of the Magic Tour, which was the first one after the end of the Rising Tour. So those songs still. Yeah, they they make it an eye rolling concert, like oh, this one again. But at the at the time, they were pretty damn special. Well, I don't think the rising does because the, I think everyone understands that the rising is just an incredibly important song in the Springsteen catalog. I think that you know when he did the uh, 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 oh, what's that was MTV? You were there the MTV show. I'm blanking now on the name of it. The MTV show that I, um, and the the storytellers. Yeah, Storytellers. Thank you. When he did Storytellers, he talked about how when he was writing The Rising, he knew it was such an important song and the way it was played on Broadway. The Rising is just a a a tentpole song for him. It's going to be one of the major songs of his career whenever it ends. And I put that in a separate class than really uh, most of the other songs in his catalog. Okay, so it's up there with with the greats. I, I I get that. I understand that, and I I have to agree. As I said in our last episode, the the version from the Obama inauguration really still sends uh, tingles down my spine when I hear it. So yeah, it's it is a very powerful song. It was one of the highlights of for on Broadway for me to be honest. Yeah, it, fabulous. But let's talk about the individual tracks. Of course, we're going to start with track one, "Lonesome Day." What do you think? 
well, as I said, I from the first opening chords of the of the string open, I I just loved it. It just it came in and it it hit me and I I loved it. I don't. <laughs> well, what Lonesome Day really does is it sets a tone for on the record, and the the imagery it presents. The house is on fire. Vipers are in the grass, and a little revenge, and this soon will pass. He's immediately opening up with a character who has experienced loss. And he is setting in that there's obviously pain and there's also anger because anger is another important part of this record. And we're going to discuss a little bit about that, especially as how crowds reacted to some of the songs, specifically Empty Sky. But it's so visceral, Lonesome Day, especially the recorded version. Oh, it just it just comes across. Yeah, very harsh. And one of the things that, that I didn't realize or I hadn't put into words was the the crunchiness of the guitars that we really hadn't heard from the E Street Band really right. since since the River, um, and that was something they were they were going for, and it was def- that was a a new different sound that Brendan O'Brien was um, was lobbying for, and he got it, and it's it's it does that song a lot of good, and in a way again it's 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 themes that he's explored elsewhere in his catalog. We talked about it with Western Stars. Lonesome day. It's a day you have to get through. You've experienced loss. How do you get through to the next day and and deal with your anger? And that sets up the entire record. Well, as I said in the in our last episode, the playlist for the pandemic, a lonesome day. The, well, the whole album in and of itself, the whole rising album is really the, uh, the album about September 12th. It's not really September 11th. This is September 12th. Everything's happened. And now this is this is how how are these people going to get through each day, each lonesome day, as, as you said? Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know that. And of course, the nation was in a period that was very unique. But I don't know that any other rock star has ever come up with an album that dealt this delved this much into pain and loss and, and those emotions, because this is such an emotional record. And it's laid out right there in the opening track. That's true. There is there's anger, and I would say there's some denial in Lonesome Day as well. Oh, I would agree uh, for and, sure. I mean, yeah. I think that the characters, as we're going to get through, you know, and some of the other songs, I think there's some denial as well. Well, as I was listening to the album in its entirety, really for the first time in a while, I was struck by the fact that um, I hear the five stages of grief from Elizabeth Kubler Ross about denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. There are songs on the album that deal with each one of those issues you know, basically separately. And I, I think I talked about that on our Western Stars podcast, too. And so it's interesting that these themes were, were, were so, so prominent back then, even though I didn't see it. Oh, I see what you're saying there. And, and I do think that it, those themes are prominently displayed here. And as we go into the next track, Into the Fire, you know, again, the, what's the first line? The sky was falling and streaked with blood. There's such a visceral painting of death and destruction and what was going on. And then, I mean, to me, this song really coming out of Lonesome Day, of course, this is a song about heroism and, and that, sacrifice and sacrifice. Love and duty called you someplace higher. And then the refrain at the end, of course, may your strength give us strength. May your faith give us faith. May your hope give us hope and may your love bring us love. There's a sense of healing this is the first sign of healing on the record. And this character in the song has sacrificed himself for the good of society. And now Bruce is looking for that sacrifice to help 
everyone else heal. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. That was he. That was honoring the the people who the first responders on the ground who said we're gonna. This is what this is what we're doing. We have no choice. And I think that that heroism and should inspire people going forward. And it should be a a relief from the grief, so to speak. Now, one of the other interesting things I noticed listening to the record straight through the other day, this is the first song where Dust is mentioned. Of course, as anyone who saw the footage of 9-11, especially the towers falling, the dust that was created was just just horrible and, and crazy. And dust is a theme on this record. Many of the songs mention the dust. Yeah, it was the dust fallout was basically was was huge was a huge factor all, all around New York, New York City and New Jersey. And it, so it doesn't surprise me that Bruce would would continually go back to it as as a major symbol on the record. Oh, I think you're totally right. And here the dust appears very early on in the song. The character is going into the building, sacrificing themselves, and they disappear into the dust. So it's very literal in terms of the dust that was a part of that day. And here it's also figurative because the character sort of mystically disappears into the dust. And of course, I think that's also a symbol of the character really going to his, his or her death. Oh, okay. I was going to go with what I like was when you said about the characters going up and becoming dust and they, they really settle all around the area. Yeah. It's like the whole area is a monument to their sacrifice. I totally agree with you there. I think that's a very good point. And when the towers came down and everything mixed together there, it's really like that entire area now is hollowed ground. And I think what Bruce then did in the title track here, which we're, of course, we're going to talk about later, but he built on that theme because in the title track, I think he eloquently expresses that everyone who died on 9-11 became a part of all of us. Okay. Well, that's certainly true. Or, or I certainly agree with that to 100 percent anyway. Uh, do you have anything else to say about Into the Fire? I really don't. So <laughs> let's go <laughs> I'm on. sorry, I'm not. <laughs> That's okay. I'm just laughing because now we're going into waiting on a sunny day. And I do have to say, whatever are our comments about the live versions of this in later years, the song really, really works on the record. It and does. it's it perfectly a perfect, it, it's a perfect yeah. pop song. Come on, let's just yeah. just say it. <laughs> it's a perfect pop song. It's perfectly placed on the record coming out of these two opening tracks, Lonesome Day and Into the Fire. And it really did speak to what was happening, I think, both in society, because we were waiting on a sunny day, and also it spoke to, of course, narratively what was happening in the two songs that had come before it to open the record. True. It's it's you can almost say it's part of the the bargaining of the the bargaining step of the of the grieving process you know i'm waiting i'm waiting for, for for this person to come home and or i'm you know waiting for the for the sun to finally come back up but it doesn't happen and his vocal on this track is really really good and it there's a sense of even though it's a popish song there's a sense of longing here i think because of course you're waiting for that sunny day right now you're in darkness and we know what a theme of darkness we know that darkness is a major theme in Bruce's work for, for the entirety of his career. <laughs> and, you know, this album, as we just said, opens pretty dark. You've got the revenge going on in Lonesome Day. You've got the pain. You've got the loss. You've got people sacrificing themselves. And then, you know, so that's why Waiting on a Sunny Day really does work perfectly here. It really does. It's it's kind of the release after the tension of the first two songs. And, of course, obviously, and, and when he d did it in concert on that tour, 
it came it came after you're missing or or what it came after the 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 two song slow pack i guess but it was between empty sky and mostly you're missing so it was even a, a very much a release in the shows yes a hundred percent and i think that the song really has now it's been underrated for sure because as you say it is a very very strong pop song it's just that events have overtaken it <laughs> later on but we're looking at it now in the context of the record and there it really does work very well as we just said it really does and but one th- one thing i want to just i want to counter your argument a little bit other other albums from bruce as he noted he noted that the river sounds like an east street he wanted to make an album that sounded like an east street band show and so this one would not have that feel at least from the from the get-go here it's just it's like a roller coaster of of a fast rocker of Lonesome Day, and then the the epic, the slow epic of uh, Into the Fire, and then back up with the pop of Sunny Day. So it's almost like he could never do this. It'd be very difficult for him to do this this album in its entirety in a show. That would be very interesting to hear this album played straight through. As much as I don't particularly love album shows in general, this one would actually be interesting to see how he would pull it off. Well, it'd be very difficult to pull off the Lonesome Day into the Fire Sunny Day trio. Let's be honest here. Yeah, I mean, it's we're not segueing from Tyza Bine into into Sherry Darling here, so no. it's a little bit a little bit different. Now, in the next track on the record, which is Nothing Man, as you just indicated, this song was actually predates nine eleven, and knowing that, it's it's very interesting because it certainly could be about nine eleven with the misty cloud of pink vapor. Now I read that to be probably the character in this song was shot either most likely in war. What do you think? I don't get that feeling. I just think he, he did something heroic and the pink vapor is, is basically symbolism of the, the kind of, I don't otherworldly mist around him or something. Well, well, the reason I say that is because I do believe if you're shot bullet wounds, that you that you do get a misty cloud of 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 a reddish pinkish vapor. Oh, I I, I totally get what you're saying about the yeah. literal imagery. I totally get mm. that, but that's not that's not how I I interpreted it. Now, of course, in the context of the record, the pink vapor, the misty cloud of pink vapor, could stand for the towers falling. Now we know it it predates, although we don't know if he tweaked any lyrics after the event and he started working on this record but it could also be the towers falling because of course the 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 towers coming down did create it in and of itself with all unfortunately the bodies inside a misty cloud of pink vapor oh yes oh i totally get that but that but again i guess knowing more about the song that it came about eight years prior i try to look at it more more loosely at least now I can see that. And I think that that's not inappropriate. I mean, this is a character on the face of it. He's suffering from PTSD. He's lost at a later point in the song. He's clearly considering suicide and praying that he's able to do that. So definitely the song stands alone, but it really, it's another song that fits in very well with thematically with what he was doing here on the record. Oh, totally. I mean, it works. And it's, you, you said PTSD. I would also throw in survivor's guilt because he's because he's still around but his 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 comrades aren't and you know certainly in just wondering how how could there still be a a sky of blue and how could he still be playing cards with his friends at al's barbecue 
when such a tragedy has occurred. And I'm sure Bruce experienced that because, uh, as you said, he knew a lot of people in his area who had worked in the towers and who experienced 9-11. Some of them lived. Unfortunately, many of them didn't. But some of them lived, and he probably came in contact with people who were dealing with a lot of survivors' guilt. Oh, absolutely, yes. And maybe— and there were certainly a lot of lot of spouses and family members, so he could have easily gotten that, kind of gotten those feelings from them as well. This record is incredibly powerful. I, that was the one thing I got the other night listening to it straight through, and it really did take me back to the first time I listened to it. Uh, and the first time I listened to it, this album hit me like a ton of bricks. Of course, uh, in, a, in you know, a good way. <laughs> well, in and not in a good way and a bad way. You know, of course, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, my family's all in New York. You know, that was a horribly traumatic day for everyone. And uh, he he really did capture it. But now we move on to uh, track five, which is a little bit more. It, well, it's a little bit less, I should say, uh, in terms of the darkness. And that's counting on a miracle. Oh, I, I hear a lot of darkness in that. Song. Well, it is true. And, and the dust makes another appearance here, too. The dust, our love is dust beneath our feet, which it does definitely not have a sort of warm and happy tone to it. No. And I, I see this as being the bargaining song in the in the five stages of grief. He's counting on a miracle. He'll just do anything for for hit for her to, to come back. Well, I agree with you, but I do think, and that's how it's placed on the record, so I totally agree there. I do think if you took this song out separate, Counting on a Miracle, this is, even though it contains the themes you just said, on its own, is separated from, if, if we didn't know about 9-11 or anything, this is a, I think to me, a pretty popish Springsteen, I want to get the girl song, don't you think? Oh, absolutely, yeah. There you go. So it's even a theme of a breakup and or just trying to get the girl still still can fit into the overarching themes of the whole album. The other night when I was listening, one of the things that I got interested in on this song was the line, your kiss was taken from me, because if you take it as it's a Springsteen song chasing the girl, I want to get the girl. And that's the miracle. That's one thing. But here was the kiss taken from him because the character he's chasing is deceased. And that was something that registered on me the other night. Well, I was trying to figure out the song's history. Bruce Space actually has it as, as a pre-9-11 song. So like it would definitely be more in the line of, of what you were just saying about it being more of a traditional Bruce breakup, get the girl, get the girl kind of song. Right. But, but he I, may have repositioned it here, obviously knowing what he was doing with the rest of the record, which then, as we know, he can sometimes change context very capably. Very easily, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, Your Kiss Was Taken From Me takes on a slightly different meaning in the middle of these other songs. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And then, but I couldn't, I was going to say, I couldn't find, in Brian Hyatt's book, I couldn't find any any mention of the song's actual origin other than the talking about the recording of, of, recording of the song with Brendan O'Brien. I got to read that Hyatt book closer. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> it is really interesting, and it's, it's, a, it's a fun read because it, it, each song gets its own section. And so he goes into the history, and you know he's interviewed tons of people over the years. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. That's going to be next up on my list during the quarantine. Okay. That sounds good. I'm actually reading right now a book about 9-11. It's actually considered to be one of the authoritative documents of 9-11. It's called The Only Play, Plane in the Sky, an Oral History of 9-11 by Garrett Graff. It's, it's, I oh, highly wow. recommend it for anyone who you wants said, to read. 
it's phenomenal. Gary or Garrett Graff? Garrett. Garrett Graff. Okay, because I know there's yeah. a there's a writer in Detroit named Gary. No, Graff. this is Garrett Graff. Yeah. Okay. All uh, right. Cool. And it's it was a New York Times bestseller, and it's it's really a fascinating and compelling read. Now it's it's difficult at times because he's documenting 9/11. Much in the way that Bruce documented 9-11 from an artistic standpoint, he is documenting 9-11 from a historical standpoint, and it's very detailed, and he spoke to a lot of people, and it's it's really interesting. All right. I did not know about that book, so I'm going yeah. to put it on my list as well. I'm currently reading about Churchill, so oh, I'm <laughs> a different historical time. <laughs> but, uh, so next up is Empty Sky. And this and, is the anger song. Yes, well— this is a song, you talk about Visceral. I used Visceral for Lonesome Day. I'm going to use it here again. Uh, this song contains such anger. I woke up this morning, I could barely breathe. Just an empty impression. The character um, wants an eye for an eye. I woke up this morning to an empty sky. There's just visceral anger there. And, and interestingly, as I think we're going to talk about in a second, the crowds reacted to that visceral anger and... Bruce did not seem to necessarily like when he performed the song on the rising tour, how the crowds were reacting to that anger, but it's there in the song. Well, it seemed to take a while for that audience reaction to, to evolve to the applause lines yes. of, of that one. I don't remember anyone applauding say in August and September, but by the, by the time we saw him in, uh, in March of 2003 playing Atlantic City, and I saw him the night before in Richmond, yeah, there was a lot of applauding at those lines. In Atlantic City, he even stopped to make a statement. He addressed the crowd and said that he did not really like the applauding of the eye for an eye line and said it was never meant to be a call for blind revenge. And then something similar happened in Albany, right? Yeah, I remember he was also bothered in Albany. We were both there. There seemed to be a reaction on his face during Empty Sky, and he waited a beat, but then between You're Missing and Waiting on a Sunny Day, which were normally played consecutively, he added in Darkness on the Edge of Town, and that seemed to be a very notable change. Wait, did he say something like an eye for an eye makes everyone blind or or be careful? Well, or... he, he said that, and, and I always found that very interesting from his standpoint, because the anger really is in the song. And of course, the public was angry and he was reflecting what the public was feeling here. And I don't I don't know if I agree with that, but go on. You don't No, um, I mean, he obviously wrote the song months before we were really marching to war with with Iraq. Oh, that well, that that's a whole right. And and you're right, because by Atlantic City, it's taking place in the context that we're going to war against Iraq, which was right. a totally different issue. That's not really what I'm talking about. I, I'm talking about that. I think as a songwriter, he, t as we know, tapped into what the nation was feeling. And I do think the nation was feeling anger. And I do think that the, it's in the song. And then people maybe took the song in a direction he didn't particularly like, which is why he stopped and and made those statements on those couple of occasions. But I, I, I always thought there was considerable anger in the song. Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. I 100% agree with you on that one. And it's it's interesting to, 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 to say, oh, Empty Sky is a really angry song, but there's no screaming vocals or, or howling guitars or anything. It's, it's pretty much a low-key song in terms of like overall musical arrangement. And then he took it even further low key when he just when he went on the tour, he made a, a duet between him and Patty. Yeah. Although so I, I will say the Max's drumming on this song, to me, it, it underlies the anger. Oh, yes. 
I can see that. And I, and then on the, I mean, not to jump too far ahead in the future here, but I thought when he when he played it at that first rehearsal show at on the Magic Tour, mm-hmm. when he played it in that full band arrangement, my feeling was that he was trying to make it darkness or darkness esque in the placement of the show and in the way it was delivered. Yeah, and and, and as you know, I was a, I, I was very pleased that he did that and he played it with the full band. Of course, it was a one time only thing, and we never saw it again. Yeah. Unfortunately, but, you know, if we look at the lines here, I want a kiss from your lips. I want an eye for an eye. I woke up this morning to an empty sky. I mean, that is it's very, very specific to actually what happened on the day or, as you say, really what happened the next day, September 12th. This whole discussion of, of the crowd reaction, it, it would be interesting to sit down. Of course, he doesn't really ever talk about these things in such detail. When you write a song that says, I want an eye for an eye, and we've just had a terrorist attack where over 3,000 people were killed, you could see, you know, especially since he had gone through the whole Born in the USA thing, you, you could see where people would take that sort of as an applause line, don't you think? I do, and and I, I I wish I had re-listened to some of those shows from that tour, especially from the March leg, and from late in late in December. Uh, but I seem to remember something about did he say the the songwriter has the last line? Or, yes, or the, or the last the last word. The last word. And I I know he he used that talking about Born in the USA on the Ghost of Tom Joe tour, and I want to say he also referred he referred to that line regarding Empty Sky too. But I just I don't remember, you know. Um, well, and we're going to talk getting about older, t- and my memory ain't what it used to be. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Well, and we're going to talk about the Rising tour at some point in much greater detail. So let's move on to Worlds Apart. He really did capture these themes on the record, and and in Worlds Apart, obviously there's two lovers. They're from different societies, and they're trying to come together and build a bridge. And that's. Yeah, and that's kind of another overarching theme of his career as well, trying to build bridges between between people. As but I just this, repeat what you said, but you know, I agree with your sentiment 100%. <laughs> well, and and this one he really does it. It's not only lyrically, it's it's very much in the music. Oh, yeah. I and I really like the way he he incorporated those that's that style of singing. I think they did a great job in in building the song and certainly using it even at the end. And just everything came together quite nicely on this one. Yeah. And the solo at the end, I was thinking the other night when I was listening to it. And do we know, was that, that was that Bruce playing the solo on the studio record? I don't know off the top of my head. I think it is. It's, it's certainly one of the longest solos on any Springsteen song on, on a studio record, at least. Obviously, there's many long solos in the shows, but there haven't been that many songs, I don't think, where there's that lengthy a solo on the actual record. Am I huh. wrong about that? Uh, I don't think you are. You are correct on that. I'm trying to think, and I don't, I can't think of anything that was that long, because I really hadn't considered how the length of it anyway until you just mentioned it, but... Now, now you got it in my head, and I'm going, yeah, that is that, that's it's, pretty long. It, it's a and it's a very passionate soul. I mean, the entire song is very passionate. I think that's something here that is is very specific to this song. There's faith in your kiss, and you're seeking comfort in your heart. And he's basically saying these two people can heal each other, and isn't that really what love does? Not to be corny. Well, true, and I I would echo another key line in the song. Let the living let us in before the dead tear us apart. Yeah, that and that is, I think, one of the key lines in the song. I think I would say on the whole album, actually. Yeah. 
and, and let love gives and let love give what it gives and allow love to keep us from 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 destroying everybody around us. Right. And that goes back to this this sense of love is healing. That's exactly what he's saying there. Let love give what it gives. Take it and open up your heart and and try and forget about this pain and loss. Well, you can never forget about it, but deal with it and and let this help you. Right. Let, let the love help nurture your grief and, and move on with that kind of acceptance in your heart. And Dust makes another appearance in this song as well. <laughs> yes, it does. And I would, one thing about Worlds Apart is that I, I have a hard time separating it from Let's Be Friends, the next song. Because oh, that's they, interesting. Because they seem to be, obviously, Worlds Apart is about love, and as, as, as a love song, as you said, bet- between t- people from different, different societies. And Let's Be Friends is definitely just one of, uh, I mean, I don't want to say just, but one of Bruce's poppy little love songs. I, I refer to it as bouncy. Bouncy, okay. It had that it nice re- little beach beach rhythm to it. I thought it would have worked in Virginia Beach a couple of years ago, but yeah, twas well, not we, that one doesn't get played very often, as we know. It's been played once. It's one very, it, it's a very polarizing song. I mean, as we start <laughs> to talk about, let's be friends. Some people have for years said, "Oh, if he had released that as a single, it would have been a hit," and other people just despise it. It's it's very interesting in that in that sense the dichotomy of the reactions to that particular song. Oh, interesting. I really hadn't heard too much of the, the it would have been a hot single. In, oh, I, you... there were people, well, what you just said about the whole, if he'd released it during the summer, you know, during beach time, it could have been, it could have been a popular song. It does have a very, as I say, a bouncy feel. Yeah, he was going for that beach vibe, as you said. Yeah, if you'd released that in July or August, who knows? Now, it's not one of my favorites on the record, I don't want to say it seems insignificant. I think it's a perfectly fine song coming out of, and you just compared it to Worlds Apart or associated with Worlds Apart. I mean, Worlds Apart is such a weightier song in my mind. Well, yeah. (laughs) And to me, Let's Be Friends is, it certainly, and, and we talked about Tuttle of Love so much in recent times, as far as the Springsteen love songs go or the Springsteen relationship songs, Let's Be Friends to me is not top shelf. Oh no, I'm, and it's—I don't think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be just a fun summer, summery jam, basically. Now, do you think he stuck it in here? Because you had mentioned earlier in the in the podcast that you would potentially remove certain songs today and make it more compact. And I think that if there's any knock on the rising, it is that it's a little bloated. And I think this is a song that most people would select to take off. Is this one of the ones you would take off? It is. I mean, I would lose the 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 combination with Worlds Apart, but at the same time, it it's not the it's not as weighty as some of the other songs on the album. So yeah, it would it would go. And I would also actually, and this hurts me to say, I would also remove further on up the road because I just think that one's a little bit too generic. Well, I can see that, and of course, that's the next trap track. I do think it is a very traditional, you could say, generic Springsteen rocker. But the one thing I'll say about Further On Up The Road is it also contains the dust. So, <laughs> yes, it does. And that was pre-9-11, obviously. Oh, it was. Oh, what am I saying? Of course. Duh? We, yeah, we we saw it performed 14 months before 9-11. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, and and I think that that's another thing that plays in perhaps on Further On Up The Road. He had played it. I do think it was a song that people embraced when he played it at the Garden. Well, let's let's not forget he debuted it in Atlanta. So 
you know, let's let's keep let's keep that in mind. But that's yes, true. see, and and that's and that's why I said it would hurt me to drop the song because I really f- felt a deep connection to it when he did it when I saw him do it at the Garden that year, um, and it was like I was almost obsessed about trying to find an IEM recording of it to to include on one of my little compilations. But so that's why um it's it's pains me to say yeah maybe that one really doesn't be, doesn't need to be here but uh we so we certainly love it at at the time and you know the arrangement was a little bit different what was your reaction to that the arrangement was different i do like the album arrangement i do think that the song ties in very well to the themes on this record of oh, course it does. the it miles does. are marked in blood and gold i mean that perfectly ties in and then in terms of the reference to dust yeah searching through the dust that's a yeah, pretty searching through the dust looking for there. a sign i mean really it ties in perfectly uh to the themes on the record even though we know obviously it predates it so i do think that the song is effective this would not be a song i would remove i i do think the the album arrangement it works for me I also really like the live arrangement that he did on the reunion tour. And I, he did, well, I think most of the times he's done it since he's also used a reunion tour arrangement in a live setting. Correct. Yeah. I was just trying to think about that earlier today. I don't think he's ever done the album arrangement. I think he may have once we'd have to go back and check. I seem to recall it being done at the Harry show with Bobby Bandiera. Right. But that's a, that was an E street. So that's true. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. And, it's funny, but I guess it's really not that different of an arrangement. It's just that the, the drums start from the from the start of the song until waiting to the beginning of the second verse. Yeah. So, and I mean, beyond that, it's it's almost the exact same vocal. It is. Yes. I, I've always liked the song. I liked it when he did it on the Devils and Dust tour. Uh, I think it's a really good song. I would not remove it. Well, if you're going to talk about the Devils and Dust version, I'm going to give a plug to the Seeger Sessions tour version of it as well. Oh, that was also, and you know, I'm not a fan that much of that tour, but that was a very interesting arrangement of the song. Yeah, I think they really did a good job on that one, and that's one of the that's one of the times where you go, how can Bruce t- take take a song like this and make it sound like something totally different? Yeah, I he's mean, just, it, it, he's, it, he's, he's he's a freaking genius. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is incredible how he takes a song and rearranges it, and I mean, some of the songs, as we know, Born in the USA has had what 15 different arrangements over time i mean it's not bad but yeah it's a a large number of them we're not going to go through them now because we're ah, going to we're going to move on to the fuse yep and what do you what's what's your take on that one well you know i said that i was trying to place myself in the context of listening to the record for the first time again the other night when i played it straight through but on this one i actually have a slightly different reaction because the song makes me think of spike lee's the 25th hour where this appears in the end credits. And that's a movie about a guy who's on his last day before going to prison. But it also, as a backdrop, has 9-11 as a powerful influence. It was shot in lower Manhattan, and Ground Zero is displayed prominently throughout the movie. And I just think that's a really powerful piece of art. And when you combine this song with it, it was really a compelling use of the song. Okay, well, I only saw that the film that one time. Uh, actually, it was my friend Joe, another big Bruce fan from the D.C. area. He got a group of us together to go see it, and uh, I was really moved by the by the strings version of the fuse. I thought that was really a. a it, it, I don't want to say it proved, well. It, okay, it did improve the song. It made it better. I like I like to hear the the twenty fifth hour version of it. 
Well, and, and sometimes when something is, you're putting two pieces of art together, including the fact that the strings were added. But to me, the 25th hour is probably Spike Lee's best movie since Do the Right Thing. And, you know, when Bruce's song comes in at the end, it really packs just a tremendous emotional wallop. I mean, that movie, I, I, I really love that movie. I can tell. <laughs> but let's talk specifically about the song. All right. Well, one thing, and I have to give a credit to someone else here, to my friend Aaron Yosh. Yeah. Um, he looked at it like the death and the horror was all around was all around them. And so they did, the characters in the song did the one thing to make them feel alive and make them appreciate love, which was make love. Yes. And very, uh, probably the most explicit Springsteen song, except perhaps other than Reno. Oh, I'm probably more explicit than Reno, but yeah, it's. I mean, he, he the uh, bittersweet taste on your tongue is followed by a sound effect that. Uh... <laughs> well, I, and and the way he delivers that line on the album, it it, it goes to, um, it's basically a cappella. Yeah, there's no backing music, and then it, no. before it it goes back into the song before the music starts back up, rather, and it's. I mean, it's they. That's a. It's an amazing song. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a great, I, great arrangement. The I, way it starts off, the way it builds. And the climax, so to speak. And here again, the dust figures <laughs> in. Oh, yeah. I just got it. <laughs> again, we're a family show, Flynn. All right. <sighs> okay. Okay. But again, the, du the dust figures in here. The blood moon rising in a sky of black dust. And the long black cars uh, in front of Holy Cross, which, of course, are limos arriving for a funeral, right? Oh, absolutely. That's To me, that's the main image, the main image of the song outside the, the sex. Yeah, just the fact that you, there were a lot of funerals going on in that part in that part of the country, in the days uh, following 9/11. Yeah, the funerals are a major part of the song, and of course the song is then followed by Mary's Place, which I think is really a song about healing. And you know, it asks, "How do you live brokenhearted?" and he seeks to answer that question after coming from all this loss and pain. Right. And I, I view the song, especially when he did it in concert on the tour was, it was like the Irish wake. It was like, it was the party. It wasn't a solemn visitation or something. It was, right. it was like a party. I mean, we, you know, and he says it's a party yeah. and, and you're right. It's, it's, and not only does it, my the one I go back to is how do you get this thing started? Right, and and turn it up. I mean, turn everything up. You know, let's get out of this. Let's release ourselves, and yeah. and there's going to be healing found in that celebration. Even though we're sad and and we've suffered from loss, you can still heal and enjoy yourself. Even though we know at the end of the party you're going to go back to a place where probably you're reflecting on the loss you've suffered. Right. I hold you. I dream of you in my arms and lose myself in the crowd. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean that's exactly. One of the key lines there. And, and of course this became a very key song on the tour itself because it really did serve for the audience as that sort of healing moment and, and, and the call and response with turn it up and, and the explosion as the song continued on. And, and he asked, how do you get this thing started? I think, again, uh, you know, look, he's a master of taking these things and dealing with these emotions 
we, there's been all this loss. I mean, it's it's coming out of the fuse where where there was a long line uh, a long line of black cars outside a church and 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 horrible things have happened H- here. You got to have a release, and and that's what he's saying, and that's what he's giving you. Exactly, and what's interesting is that he 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 seems to name check at least two religions. Maybe I think maybe three. Uh, he name check. He talks about uh, Buddha, right? Right. In the song, and then he talks about seven days, seven candles. That's that's a that's a reference to Shiva, the right. Jewish the Jewish Shiva. And I'm sure there's some there's some Catholic imagery in there as well. I just can't think oh, of well, it at the uh, moment. Of, of course, he's using the name Mary, which well, is they, as we know a have. recurring theme in, in Bruce's work for many decades. Right. Of course, you know people would say he might have gotten that from Sam Cooke's song "Meet Me at Mary's Place." And it became the like the centerpiece of the sh- of the show, as you said, with the band intros and another example of it was basically it basically became the Tenth Avenue of the Rising Tour. Yes, and it, I think the placement here because it 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 comes in between the fuse, and that now in a second we're going to talk about you're missing. It really, in a way, he's giving you this celebration. And then it it is sort of reflecting what I just said that after you leave this party and you've had a moment of healing, you're going to go back and and that that loss is of course still going to be there, and that's what re- is reflected in your missing. Right. You can almost even say the missing is kind of or you're missing is kind of the hangover from Mary's place. Yeah, it totally is. The, the imagery here is so stark. The character singing about a lover who's never going to return. And the little things that are left behind, you think of the coffee cup, the jacket, it really strikes me that this is so universal in capturing the feelings of when someone close to you dies. But here it's in the context of 9-11, and there's also the suddenness of it. You think of all those people who got up that morning and left and never came home. It just really, the way he puts it into words here, it's so effective, it's brilliant. Oh, I think it's one of the best songs on the album. Yeah, well, I think it's one of the best songs he's ever written. Period. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was I was going to follow it up by saying, you know, I wish he he had done it more and on since the since the Rising tour. I guess well, he we did know, it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I mean, I guess he did it a, once or twice on the Devils and Dust, and certainly the one time in uh, uh, in Pittsburgh in on, in 2016. But you know, for a great song, it certainly does. Uh, certainly gets overlooked on at least in concert set list. Well, the question is, is it almost too emotional for him to do? I mean, the the version he did in Pittsburgh. I mean, you, I wasn't there, but Neither you was can I. Fe- you can feel on the recording. I mean, literally the emotion coming out of him. Oh yeah, and the and the way, and obviously the way he he played the Danny's organ solo on the harmonica instead of giving it to Charlie to replicate what Danny did, that adds an, another layer to the song. There's a line in this song about there's too much room in my bed that is just uh, it's it's just I'll use a word I used with Moonlight Motel. It's just so devastating to think, you know, the character laying in bed and there's too much room there because they're per- they're 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 the love of their life has been taken in sudden circumstances and and now the other side of the bed is empty. It's just it really devastating is the right word. And yeah. And I would say that the, I guess, the mundane details that he mentions about, as you said, the coffee cup on the counter, jackets on the chair. I mean, these are little, little things that you don't even think of until something like that happens. Yeah. And again, here, the dust figures into it. There's dust on the shoes, obviously very intentional. There's also an interesting reference here to 
the devil's in the mailbox, which, as we know, after 9-11, there was also an anthrax scare. I, I read that to to reflect on that. Is that what you would make of that line? No, it's not. Um, I mean, I see the liter- literalness of it, but mm-hmm. to me, I always see the devil in the mailbox as being letters or, or bills or just any mail with the deceased name on it. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's a very, very good point, too. Yeah, I may be misreading that there. That well, does I, make a lot of sense. Well, I know a lot of people had the same thought about the anthrax re- being in that song, but, you know, I, I can see it, but I, I kind of like my interpretation better. And they both work. Yours definitely works. And the devil's in the mailbox in the context of the time, certainly, because people were fearful after this horrible tragedy. Now you were going to go to your mailbox in some randomly there was going to be a deadly toxin there. So, uh, but I, I do see what you're saying. And I, and I think that's a very good point. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I was one more comment about this long before we move on is that to me, this is the going back to my five stages of grief that I like to mention. And this is the depression step. I mean, there's really, this is the saddest song on the album. There aren't too many people who've written rock songs sadder than this. <laughs> no, no. And this is, so this is the yeah, this is the, the depression song in terms of those five stages of grief. So, but let's let's move on to something a little bit more hopeful with The Rising. Totally. I mean, you come out of this sense of grief and The Rising is a very hopeful song. Yeah, it's even though it's kind of told from the point of view of someone who of someone who dies at the end of the song, it is pretty hopeful. Well, it's what I was saying earlier. It's yes, like it is. You're right. the character is ascending which is the literal rising and they're becoming like a part of all of us. And he's in the song again, and there's a lot of religious imagery in the song. Again, he's using Mary, you know, but there's that dream of life at the end. And, and in a way, even though we understand that the, the character has died, I, I feel that this song has a celebratory ending. Don't you? Oh, absolutely. The catfish dancing on the end of my line. I always, that's kind of, the singer's not ready to die yet. <laughs> He's still hanging on. Yeah, he, do, he doesn't want to go, but there, you know, Mary. Then he sees Mary, Mary in the garden of a thousand sides with pictures of the children, and he accepts. He accepts it, and he's going to go. And this song opens with again such heroism. You know, the character is ascending, can't see nothing in front of him, can't see nothing coming up behind. He's literally placing you in the mind of a firefighter who's was went into that building and went up in those towers. It it it's just such a striking song. And and the fact that it ends in such a celebratory fashion, look, this is where the album pays off. And and this is why this song has become such an important part of his catalog. And surprisingly, even though like the, the, some of the imagery is pretty specific to what happened on that horrible day, it can still be extrapolated to to apply to say the Obama inauguration or or on Broadway. I think in Broadway, he made it more of a of a national of a national feeling kind of thing. Yeah, to try it, to bring people together instead of dividing them. I think that it, on Broadway, it did reflect the times that we're in and obviously the very divided nation. And I do think he did recontextualize it there. And as we've discussed before, that's something he does tremendously and he does it often. And these songs take on slightly different meaning. And and he has used the rising to that effect, I think, over time, both with Obama's inauguration and some of the other locations and, and Broadway. So it's just an incredibly powerful song. It's going to be a song, one of the songs that he's remembered for, 
Absolutely. And, and if they ever tour again, he's going to he's going to keep playing it every night. And and that's OK. Yeah. Now, the next track on this album, which is Paradise, w- this is one of the more controversial tracks of his career, you would say, right? Um, except for the fact that it hasn't gotten a lot of has not gotten a lot of exposure. I guess I guess that's an accurate statement. Right. Well, it's not it's American, no American skin. skin. Yeah, <laughs> it's not American skin because it didn't have that level of public awareness. But this was a song of, uh, I think, within the fan base, it was somewhat controversial and he really hasn't played it too much. But, you know, looking at the lyrics, I mean, what do you make of this song? Well, I, the first the first verse is obviously, the, you know, from the perspective of a, of a terrorist, of a, yeah, of a suicide, suicide bomber. bomber. Yeah. And I see no reason Bruce can't write about that. Bruce wrote about from the point of view of Charlie Starkweather in Nebraska. And I mean, how many other broken men has he, has he sung from the point of view of, right? So why can't he put himself into the shoes of, of a terrorist bomber? Oh, I don't have any problem with it. I do think as we go on and look at the song, there are lines towards the end of the song that people don't know what to make of. And then I'll be honest. I mean, it, well, let's discuss the whole song before we get to the end. But the ending is ambiguous would be one way of putting it. I'm not sure I agree with you. You know, I mean, I well, the second verse is about the sounds like it's about a, a woman who lost her husband at, at the Pentagon. I, I, yes. I believe that was yeah. the literal inspiration for it. Yeah. The, well, the Virginia Hills, I would assume, is a reference to the Pentagon. That's what I took from it. Right. And and I actually hear in the last in the and then the closing verses, I actually hear that woman's voice. I don't hear the suicide bomber. I hear the woman. She went underneath the water. To, I mean, she was like almost dream, in a dream way. She was looking for him. And but his eyes were blank. They were I forget what the exact line is, but they were blank. And then, but then she came and, and broke and broke above the above the well, waves. Well, the singer, the the protagonist, is saying, "I search for the peace in your eyes, but they're as empty as paradise." Right. Then the singer breaks above the uh, the character, I should say, not the singer. The character breaks above the waves and feels the sunlight upon their face. I mean, to me, there is some ambiguity there. Maybe I'm misreading it. I've always been intrigued by this song. And I will say that when he played this song on the Devils and Dust tour, it was absolutely phenomenal. Oh, and, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I mean, one of the highlights of the entire tour. And he often paired it with Real World, which is a, a very interesting pairing. So the the character singing, I sink beneath the water, cool and clear, drifting down, I disappear. You think that's the woman who's dealing with the loss from the Pentagon? I do, and I think that's her. It's her acceptance. It's her. It's the acceptance of the grief of uh, the final step of the grieving process. It's that, that's the acceptance, and she realized that she could kill herself because she's so depressed, she's so upset about her, her husband dying. But she realizes that there's still life to live. I I like what you're saying there, and I and I do see that. I have sometimes interpreted it differently, especially because the the recurring refrain and I wait for paradise and I wait for paradise. I mean, to me, uh, the, the character singing in the water, who's looking for, uh, the peace in your eyes. And, and again, the, they're there, those eyes are now empty as paradise to me. That almost reflects back to the first verse because 
is that saying that the person who was the suicide bomber and blew themselves up, that they searching for paradise, but really what they found there was emptiness? I hadn't thought about that, but that's that's a good point. Um, that's not the interpretation I've gone with all these years, but I can I can see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, and that's why I say I think the song is somewhat ambiguous, and I and I think it was intended to be ambiguous. Oh, that, and I and I what's that? Definitely ambiguous. But I do think that it is possible that th- that those lines about empties paradise do reflect back to the first verse. Okay, well, we should add it to our list of questions to ask him when he when he yeah. comes on our podcast. Finally. Oh, I would I would love to ask him about <laughs> something like this because you know his response would probably be so fascinating. Although he probably my guess is he wouldn't want to answer and he wants to leave it up to the listener to interpret. Right, I can see that, but. Yeah, let's let's pin him down on that one. But, you know, as you were pointing out about the rising and, and hopefulness creeping in, I do think here these last two lines, I break above the waves, I feel the sun upon my face. It's like we've spoken about in other songs in the Springsteen catalog where the sun shines down, spare parts. I do think that there's an element to that here, that as we get to the final track of the record, those two lines are indicating a sense of hope. Right. It's a sense of going on and we've we know how to begin again and now we're gonna now we're gonna do it very interesting stuff here from bruce and he really you know we say this so often and of course he could never play everything that we say uh, because there are so many songs and he has so many songs in the catalog but at some point hopefully he will revisit some of this stuff he generally only does it on on smaller tours but this uh, a song like paradise is really worth revisiting of course, if they if they can never get the rising tour recording issue solved, we might actually hear it. <laughs> well, well, it was only played what three times: once in Asbury, and then. Well, it was played in, at the FedEx show in September of '03. Right. Uh, maybe it was twice in Asbury. It was it was played twice in Asbury and once at the FedEx show. That's it. I think so. We'd have to go back and check for sure, but I, that's on, what I recall on. off the top of my head. Oh, that's right. You are you are correct. It was done at two at two rehearsal shows and then FedEx in, in in DC in September, and then not again until the Devils and Dust tour. And it hasn't been done since the end of the Devils and Dust tour. No. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely needs to be uh, definitely an underrated song, an underappreciated song by by many. And that brings us to the last track, which is another pretty big song in the Springsteen catalog. That's My City of Ruins. Yep, that's. Uh, Another song that takes on different meaning as as time goes by. And it was a song, of course, that was written before 9-11. We know that because it was (laughs) premiered a a year earlier. And as I said in our playlist show the other day, this is a song. It it was a prayer for Asbury, and then it became a prayer for 9-11. It's been used as a prayer in other aspects, especially the loss of Clarence and Danny on the Wrecking Ball tour where... The song was was really placed brilliantly and used in a manner that was different than it had been used before. So but I think that shows the power of the song that he's been able to, again, recontextualize it as needed for these very powerful moments that he wants to reflect on. And it worked great as the as a prayer for Asbury. It really was the city of ruins that was going to rise up and then. Certainly, when it when it was applied to to the events of nine eleven, I mean that's that's e- even more literal there. I mean than he, than it was a year earlier. This is of course another song that relies heavily on religious imagery, as I was talking about the other day. You've got the church door, you've got the organ, you've got the congregation, 
and it's got a very spiritual feel to it just uh, throughout the entire song. I would put it right next to to Rocky Ground in terms of uh, the most gospel he's ever done. Yeah, I, and, and this song, it was as you pointed out, it was really effective when they premiered it at the Christmas shows in 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 two thousand, and. He really did. This is a really good studio version of, of the song. And, you know, again, the, uh, tears on the pillow where we slept, you know, the, the person next to him is miss, missing without your sweet kiss. How do I begin again? Asking, re-asking the questions that we've been contemplating on the entire record. But then as you get to the end of the song, he answers them. He answers them. And and the answer is we're going to rise up and we're going to we're going to beat this. We're all, the, we're going to be OK. Right. With these hands, we're going to rise up. And I know that's not the actual line from the song, but that's what he's saying. Oh, 100 percent. And and you're using prayer and, and strength and faith and love. And all of those things are going to beat back this loss that we've all suffered and and we're going to rise up and and it's an incredibly powerful statement pretty unbelievable that he had the song sitting at, as we know already there i guess it's would you say a coincidence i don't know that he just happened to have written the song a year earlier and he was able to repurpose it for for to end this record but it I, there is not another song that could end this record i mean it is the perfect ending to the record and the story he has told here it is, and I, but I don't want you to forget about the telethon version of the song. Yeah, you, you remember that one too, yes. right? Yeah. I mean, when we heard he was going to be playing, we all assumed it was going to be City of Ruins, <laughs> and and he de- he delivered a, a very beautiful version of it at, at that show. Well, sadly, of course, it really New York was a city of ruins. Literally, yes. Yeah, the entire city, I mean, and the entire nation had suffered a wound, you know, and that's reflected in these lyrics, as as I was just saying, uh, just a wound that was so deep and the power of him calling to rise up and and try and beat that and overcome it. Really um, amazing stuff. Yes. And here we are. It's, we're see, almost 20 years since he since he's written the song and the song is very applicable to what's going on right now. Oh, yeah. With the and with with the coronavirus and that's why it was number having, one on my playlist the other day. <laughs> well, it worked quite well, and it's just amazing. Again, we talk about how Bruce likes to repurpose songs. Well, here, Bruce, here's your fourth version of it. Here, yeah, your, your fourth fourth purpose of it. So that really does wrap up the rising. I think you know, as we were saying, just a tremendous piece of work by Bruce, and one that is going to endure. Yes, and. Uh, Bruce, if that fan really did say, Bruce, we need you, I think Bruce really came through on this one. Yeah, and we did need him, and he helped us, and he helped everyone. So just, again, amazing record, and, you know, I think we've talked it through pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine there's too much else we could say, but so let's just, let's just wrap it up. Right, so we'll be back in two weeks or so with another episode. Let's finish with a bit of business, as always. None But The Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other major ones. On the web, we can be found at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. And on Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McClain saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. 
B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.